Hey, welcome to Plant Yourself. I'm your host, Howard Jacobson. Two quick announcements before we get to today's show. If you're interested in becoming a health coach, I'm offering another run due to popular demand for people who can't make 8 p.m. on Wednesday nights, Eastern Time. So we're doing another run of the program, which will meet the practicums will meet at 10 a.m. on Wednesdays, Eastern Time U.S., which means if you're in Europe or Africa, uh, that might be good for you. Also, if you're in the US and evenings aren't good and you have free time in the mornings, either 7 a.m. Uh, Pacific time or 10 to 1130 Eastern, then you can participate. If you want to find out more about becoming a wicked effective health coach, you can go to wellstartcoach.com. Second thing is, if you're not aware of it, Josh Lajani and I have a book that is free on Amazon Kindle. It's called Sick to Fit. And if you just go to Amazon and search for Sick to Fit, you'll be able to download it for free and read it on any Kindle enabled device, even a phone, smartphone, tablet, computer whatever. All right, let's get to today's episode. This is the Plant Yourself podcast. I'm Howard Jacobson of plantyourself.com and wellstarthealth.com. This podcast is part of my mission to help you live a vocal and visionary life. So today's guest, Jesse Herrera, is the founder and chief visionary of Urban Theory, which you can find online at utheory.net, which I would categorize as a combination think tank and act tank for social and economic and environmental justice, or as Jesse puts it, an innovation lab to prototype and scale solutions to urban poverty. Their projects include finding solutions to college homelessness, food and economic insecurity, and all the other ways in which communities that are not economically advantaged tend to fray and fall apart. As you'll discover, Jesse is an interesting guy. He's a former gang member as well as a recovering architecture student. He's an urban planner and I think of him like a, a visionary realist, which sounds like an oxymoron, but really in the lineage of one of his mentors, Muhammad Yunus, who is the creator of the Grameen Bank, which has been credited with lifting hundreds of thousands of people out of poverty. So Jesse and I met at the World Healthcare Congress this past May in Washington, D.C., and we immediately bonded by nerding out over sustainable small plot agricultural tools and strategies, such as our Italian two-wheel tractors and compost tea. And we discovered that our missions aligned. Uh, with Wellstart, I work with individuals and organizations, while Jesse targets cities and communities. Because while there's no shortage of good ideas and well-meaning programs for dealing with pressing social issues, there is a real scarcity of battle-tested research and development to figure out what actually works and how those gems can be scaled. Jesse and his team at Urban Theory are changing that, and his passionate vision and clear-headed appraisal of obstacles and opportunities makes for an inspiring conversation, which we will get to in just a minute after a couple items of business. First, I just noticed that there has not been a new Plant Yourself podcast review on Apple Podcasts since April, and I'm recording this in July, so it's been a long dry spell. I didn't really notice that, but now I am. And so if you're a longtime listener or a new listener and you'd like to help spread the word and you'd like to help by rolling up your sleeves and contributing something to the mission, and maybe you don't have a ton of time or money, 
just going to iTunes or Apple Podcast or whatever it's called these days or Stitcher or wherever you get your podcasts and leaving a review, giving us some stars and writing down what you like will help other people find this podcast. It will help me a great deal in order to attract the kind of guests that sometimes want to look at statistics like that. Second, while I'm on the topic of uh, reviews, if you have read Sick to Fit, the book that I wrote and audio recorded with Josh Lajani, and you have you have not yet reviewed it on Amazon, I'd love it if you took a moment and did that as well. And finally, Well Start Health is starting new cohorts at least monthly and sometimes every couple of weeks. So if you're chomping at the bit to make changes to your life, to your health, to really take control of the rudder of your own health destiny. Check us out wellstarthealth.com. We still have our offer going where when you sign up, you get for free blood pressure cuff and scale that are Bluetooth enabled and will connect to the platform so we can have data to help us navigate your health journey all the way through. All right, enough about me and my needs. Let's now cover tackling food and economic insecurity through urban agriculture. Without further ado, Jesse Herrera, welcome to the Plant Yourself podcast. Thank you. I'm, I'm happy to be here. Yeah. So uh, let's start by telling folks a little bit about um, Urban Theory, what it is and why you started it. Urban Theory is an innovation lab here in Fort Worth. Uh, the goal of Urban Theory as an innovation lab is we help address um, uh, very difficult challenges. So our our mission is helping mission-based organizations execute scalable solutions to today's most difficult challenges. And primarily what we focus on is systemic challenges. So we look at uh, challenges that require multiple disciplines and also can get quite convoluted and uh, complex very quickly. So take, for example, homelessness. If one is trying to address homelessness altogether, it's more than just, say, providing a house. There are economic conditions that go into it. There are sometimes food insecurity issues that go into it. And there's a number of other things. Um, if we just take a specific example from one of the projects I'm working on, uh, college homelessness, one of the gentlemen uh, that we're trying to help was previously incarcerated. So there's challenges that come with that as well, particularly in this gentleman's case. He can't qualify for a job and he can't qualify for an apartment. That makes it very difficult to be able to offer this particular individual solutions because you have to get through these steps in order to make any progress. So kind of wrapping it all up in a systemic challenge like this, what we help organizations do is be able to understand what does the challenge actually encompass and how do we put together tangible implementation strategies that result in scalable action? And we can go as far as implement, implementing those scalable strategies as we're doing with the Urban Agriculture Project, which we'll discuss a little bit more in depth later today. Uh, or, you know, just being able to hand over those toolkits and let them implement them at their, at their convenience. Um, we are also looking at launching a nonprofit arm here locally that'll help us be able to experiment with other different different types of toolkits with the hope of being able to provide more tangible results for other institutions. And also being able to be a resource here locally for organizations to be able to address those very difficult challenges. Gotcha. So so one of the things I'm hearing is, so you're, you're working on like really big challenges like homelessness, uh, food insecurity, poverty, and you're working on a bunch of them. 
Right. Yeah, well, we, I wouldn't say a bunch just yet. Right now, we're we're primarily focused on two projects. I mean, ideally, you know, as business gets good, uh, we would like to uh, embrace more projects. But the two major projects that we're focusing on are college homelessness and economic and food insecurity in a neighborhood called Stop Six, which is located in zip code 76119 here in Fort Worth, Texas. And um, particularly with that community, some of the issues that we're looking at, you know, are obviously food insecurity, uh, not having access to jobs, transit insecurity. We haven't really got into that later part yet. But when you look at communities like this, there's a lot of uh, attributes that lead them to be in the situation that they're in. Um, so particularly like with these two projects, uh, we feel it's a good starting ground to test some of our toolkits and also just to help build a, a shared awareness on some of, the, of what's you know, really going on in our home city. Mm-hmm. Okay, so, but but still, the these two topics are complex, and your your vision is to tackle lots and lots of complex issues. So, you know, partly part of me is thinking, wouldn't it be easier to just like focus on one issue, like to be the the college homelessness uh, innovation lab or the food and security lab? But there's there's something about that I think about the synergies that that. It's, it's somehow easier to tackle things from a very synergistic, holistic level, especially if the if the, the challenges are systemic. Is that kind of the the foundation of your philosophy that it's easier to tackle things at a system level when it may look messier than just focusing on okay, let's get let's let's be Habitat for Humanity and build houses. Correct. You're you're right on that part. I mean, there are some natural synergies between the two projects that we're um, that we're currently pursuing with uh, um, but the strategy that we look at, particularly with systemic challenges, um, so you, you have to take a you have to zoom out just a little bit. In the DFW area, there's roughly about thirty thousand nonprofits, give or take, that are you know doing some measurable amount of good work, and they do really good work. However, that said, in Dallas alone. It still one of, it still has one of the highest percentages of childhood poverty. So what this leads to what this leads us to in terms of conclusion is that some of the strategies aren't working as well as maybe we, we'd hope. And it's no ill will of say a nonprofit or an organization or a business that's trying. It's just the fact that a lot of these institutions have to work in silos to be able to achieve their mission. And it's very difficult to get away from addressing that mission. So, and typically what I see is a lot of these missions tend to be focused around addressing the symptoms. So in a case of like, say, Habitat for Humanity, again, doing really great work, they're addressing kind of the final symptom of homelessness, you're without home. So um, one can do that, but the strategy that we look at is how do we break this challenge out into manageable components and then be able to foster those alignments with organizations that are currently doing good work. And then within the spectrum, when we find things that maybe don't have um, don't have an existing program, those become opportunities to innovate, to experiment, to try new prototypes to then help further the cause. And the reason behind this is that way we're being able to create a actionable effort towards the root cause rather than just getting hung up on the symptoms. Mm-hmm. Um, and the other thing I just heard you say was that you're thinking of starting a nonprofit arm, which means that you're, you're, you're a for-profit organization. So if, if, if me and a bunch of like entrepreneurial-minded friends were sitting around drinking beer late at night thinking, how can we make a buck? 
Like probably we wouldn't come up with stopping college homelessness and ending food insecurity in impoverished communities. Like that wouldn't be at the top of our, you know, oh boy, there's a lot of money waiting for us to solve this problem. What, what was the basis for beginning Urban Theory and deciding to be a for-profit organization? So the reason behind Urban Theory and the reason why we're tackling the challenges that we're tackling probably started right after I got out of college. So I, I was trained um, in school to be an architect and I practiced roughly for about a year before the market crash. And after practicing architecture, I became quite disenfranchised with the process and really the product that I was developing. So particularly with the firm that I was with, I was developing uh, what was called single um senior assistant living and independent living homes. So basically, if you were a senior, you would either have a choice of living in a home where you would have, you know, an at-home nurse or some form of uh, caretaker that would help you through the day-to-day stuff or an independent where, you know, you're living a little bit more vibrantly, you kind of take care of yourself. But essentially what these were were apartments. And what I found out very quickly, particularly with the, uh, with the clients that we were working with, is that these apartments were being sold for a very high profit margin. So, uh, one apartment, for example, that kind of stuck out was about a 12, 1400 square foot apartment and it was selling for about 1.2 million. And this was back in 2008, I believe. So right off the bat, this is very limited to a very affluent population of seniors. And two, even if you are affluent, I still felt that it was wrong to be able to expect that much of an individual's retirement to be able to essentially downscale and, you know, retire in peace. So, this started a whole journey on trying to figure out how could I utilize architecture in a way to create more affordable and equitable um, buildings and uh, cities. Long story short, after a long series of research, uh, traveling across the United States, looking at different real estate prototypes, looking at different architectures, um, I came to a consensus that um, everything in terms of the real estate world was very much the same. Um, and I even got invested in some of the real, like uh, the local real estate council chap- chapter here, just to learn a little bit more about the development process. But I did get an opportunity to go to Jakarta, uh, I believe about five, six years ago. Um, and when I was in Jakarta, I attended this uh, conference called the New City Summit. And I had the pleasure of being able to listen to Mohammed Yunis, uh, a former Nobel Peace Prize winner, uh, uh, renowned for the Grameen Bank. And his keynote was uh, a very influential component of me changing the perspective from, I guess, architecture to systems design, because he spoke very heavily on systems design and how, you know, although well-intentioned with our careers, sometimes the systems that we operate in don't allow us to really uh, create any different types of solutions. So if you go back on, say, architecture, for example, and I've written about this some, there's a component of architecture that's kind of stuck in this industrial loop. So say if you're uh, very passionate about sustainable and environmental practice, as an architect, it's very difficult to truly idealize that and achieve that because you're in a business that requires you to continuously produce the product very much like any other industrial industry. And even and one of the key components of sustainability is reducing consumption. Hmm. So again, within this business model, it becomes very difficult for one to actually achieve those goals. Now, if you expand outside sustainability, environmental issues, and you look at some of these other issues as a whole, such as systemic challenges, you start seeing similar patterns. So for us, for me, it was really about how could I utilize my creative capital, you know, practicing architecture, uh, 
practicing construction, practicing portfolio management, um, to really create impact and really leave a legacy behind where others could innovate from. And for me, I think a large part of it just comes from seeing, you know, uh, some of the grand challenges that we're facing as a society. And the more interesting part really kind of reflects on my personal life, which I'll share. Um, so before I was a professional, before I was, um, you know, a, a core founder of Urban Theory, uh, or even a student at that, at, for that matter, I was involved in gang activity here in Fort Worth. Um, it's a big component of what I in my early childhood. And I got to see a, a pretty good, healthy amount of uh, society's underbelly. underbelly. Uh -huh. um, well, so you, so, so you, um, you grew up in Fort Worth. Mm -hmm. And so like, like describe like your, your family and neighborhood. Like, I think I'm, I'm curious about like, you know, sort of jumping, jumping into the gang, like where, how, how embedded was that consciousness, you know, just as a, as a kid, what sort of, you know, like paint, can you paint a little bit of a picture of, of sort of pre-gang? Absolutely. So, I mean, I grew up in a working class family. I had a, for the most part, a single uh, working mother. Uh, she held a job till just recently uh, as an entrepreneur. So she cleaned houses. She ran a, a construction company for a little bit. Um, she was a kind of a core uh, component of my life. Uh, it wasn't until I was about eight years old that uh, I, you know, was blessed with my stepfather, who still is married to my mother to this day. But we were very much a working class family. So we weren't necessarily in poverty, but we weren't ex uh, exactly in a position where we had, um, you know, uh, large amounts of, of expendable income uh, to buy things, you know. Mm -hmm. So as a child, you know, we didn't really take very many vacations unless, you know, they were built around going to see the family in South Texas. Um, we didn't really have a lot of luxury items, but we, we got by, you know, we had food on the table. We had a, a roof over our head. We had running water. We had a bed to sleep in. Uh, so it was, it was a comfortable existence. Um, but the interesting part about the story, like pre-gang, is uh, the thing that actually pushed me into becoming a gang was actually my fellow Latino peers. And the reason why I got pushed into that was because I didn't speak Spanish. Um, uh, I got mocked a lot for that. And over, you know, a series of a year or so, that pushed me into a very narrow group of people with similar situations. And what, you know, starts out as just becoming, you know, a brotherhood to kind of take care of each other and hang out leads to other things such as, you know, uh, robbing folks, selling dope um, and, a, you know, a number of other crimes. So if you look at the history of that, my mother didn't teach us Spanish primarily because she was she grew up in South Texas during the 50s and the 60s. And during that time, if you spoke Spanish, particularly in school, you would get punished for that, not only by uh, your fellow peers, but by the teachers as well. So in order to acclimate me and my other siblings to the American way, we had to be taught English. And by doing so uh, and not learning Spanish, um, that was kind of my initial pathway into the gang life. Um, Luckily, I was able to get out without, you know, ruining my record or putting my life in, uh, well, I put my life in danger, but it didn't end up costing me my life. Uh, so I use a lot of what I saw with that experience, plus what I've seen with, you know, my travels and, you know, my career to really forge a better, a better future for future generations. Um, and really trying to look at, you know, how do we change the, I guess you could say the status quo or the way that things are currently working so we can create a more proactive, uh, you know, business environment and uh, social environment to advance well-being for everyone everywhere. Uh -huh. So, 
I mean, it sounds it sounds like you know. You, so your mom was a single working mom, but she was an entrepreneur, which comes with a sort of set of values of responsibility and and bootstrapping and making do. She couldn't have been particularly happy with your choice to kind of out outsource your ethics to to a gang. Was there was there was there like a struggle in that? Oh, there was a huge struggle. I mean, I, I recall many nights, you know, getting into arguments about where I'm going and how late I'm hanging out. I mean, there was many nights that she stood up, you know, two, three o'clock in the morning, you know, waiting by the window for me to show, you know, if I was, you know, waiting to see if I was going to show back up that night. Um, but I mean, um, she told me something uh, roughly a couple of years ago that that stuck with me. She's like, look, I She's like, I wanted to stop you and I wanted to do everything in my power to keep you from doing it. But she's like, I knew if I did that, I would lose you forever. Mm. So I let you I let you I let you live your life knowing, you know, and it gave you full awareness of what the ramifications would be if you got caught, hoping, you know, that you would eventually make the right choice. But she's like, I knew you need to live this life in order to really understand the choices that you were making and the, um, you know, the what would eventually become of you. So there's a part of that that, that I appreciate that, you know, she kind of let me, I, I guess you could say, grow up on my own. But I mean, it was a quite quite the struggle for her. And I mean, I, you know, I feel for her that, you know, with the pain and uh, the long nights that I, that I left her with, um, you know, I mean, it, it wasn't easy by any means. Mm. But it also sounds like there was a certain logic in your head about where about where you were going that, that maybe kind of informs the work you do now that there's that there's sort of a, a social logic that leads people to make decisions and leads group to make decisions that maybe aren't in their self interest. Um, that you, you are you're you're sort of poking those points rather than, you know, someone coming in who maybe didn't have a gang experience to say, well, the problem is that these kids, you know, need to learn discipline or respect, as opposed to you being able to to see a much larger uh, perspective. Correct. And I mean, even with discipline, I mean, it, it's no guarantee. I mean, I had a very well-disciplined, you know, household. I mean, my mother was, was no fool uh, and she held a pretty rigid uh, um, rule of law, particularly around education. So even amidst all this trouble that I got into as in my, uh, you know, my adolescence, I never missed a day of school. There was an innate fear with with missing school and what my mother would do if I did that. So I mean, even throughout that, I maintained that as a consistent throughout this entire experience. Um, so I mean, it wasn't it wasn't any you know any effect because they were you know my mother was a bad parent or she didn't you know instill some form of rigid uh, you know uh, authority. It's just the facts of you know. Uh, the environment that she couldn't control, which was, you know, how other kids would react to me, how uh, uh, teachers would react to me, you know, and just some of the subtle things that, you know, happen in day to day life. Um, so maybe some could say that maybe, it, you know, um, it boils down to maybe how other parents were raising their kids, maybe, but it, it, there's a lot of social determinants that lead into one making this decision and particularly for me you know i mean the mockery was a big part of it but the other piece too is i didn't really have uh, a lot of immediate family in my uh, surrounding i mean i had uh, siblings um but uh, as part of my mother's rule of law some of them were off limits because they were already engaging in like gang activity drugs and things like that so i didn't really have a lot of relationships with 
uh, a lot of my brothers and sisters, uh, not to mention that half of my siblings were on my father's side. So I didn't really have a relationship with them at all since he left uh, when I was five. And the rest of my family was scattered throughout South Texas. And after my grandfather passed away, uh, a lot of the family kind of fragmented. Um, there was a lot of mischief and uh, kind of uh, um, unethical practice that happened after my grandfather's death. And it really drove a huge wedge between our entire family. So in short, uh, aside from my sister, my mother and my stepfather, I didn't really have uh, much of a family here. So added to this effect that, you know, these kids were picking on me, I made my own family with these folks um, that I bonded with. And I think that's part of, you know, uh, at least with this particular challenge, part of the thing one has to understand, like you're trying, when you're trying to separate someone from this condition, you're almost trying to separate them from a family, or at least in my perspective, that's how it was perceived to me. And it really took, you know, a very big slap in the face uh, in the form of a betrayal um, that led me to finally leave this group. Uh -huh. Can you, are you okay talking about what that was? So essentially, uh, there was, um, there was a night we were all heading to a nightclub and we had to, uh, we, uh, my friends got into a situation at a gas station and, uh, what I feel comfortable sharing, long story short, is uh, they got into a confrontation at a gas station. Um, there was a, you know, a mild assault, attempted assault, uh, which led to a car being stolen, which led to that car being driven into one of my neighbor's houses. Um, and granted, I was only there during the last piece of this thing going down, and I didn't want to have any part of this experience or what they were doing at this point in my life, I was already beginning to question whether or not this was the type of life I wanted to have. So after this thing happened, um, a detective was brought in rightfully. So, and the, the end result was I was, uh, I found myself having to be interviewed by this detective, even though I really didn't have any role to play in this uh, event. Um, and I was given a very explicit story to tell by my peers and left with a very awkward uh, position to take. Hmm. Tell the story that was uh, that I was told to tell and risk my freedom or tell the truth and risk my life. Um, I picked, you know, the first option, you know, out of fear of what could happen to me and my family and by the grace of God or luck or whatever you want to pick, um, you know, um, I was, I was able to, uh, walk away with my freedom. And after that, you know, I had to basically alter my course. So I erased all their numbers. I enrolled in college shortly after that and basically rebuilt my life from there, uh, with a clean slate, um, which is a whole nother chapter in my life. I mean, that college at that point became very difficult, at least from a social perspective, because, you know, my perception of people at that time was very different. You know, I didn't trust anyone. So uh, that started a whole new chapter of like rebuilding myself and like, um, uh, you know, learning how to trust society again. Uh huh. Well, you know, not not to uh, not to psychoanalyze you because I only met you like for half an hour once. <laughs> but uh, but I'm trying to think about someone who who had this role model of entrepreneurship, who joined a gang, which I imagine is all about sort of reading people in situations 
um, and then sort of getting, you know, escaping with your life and your your name intact and having the opportunity to make something of yourself. Like what led you to go into what's a really, you know, quite to me, a very altruistic mission driven career as opposed to, OK, I'm going to become the next, you know, shark tank entrepreneur. I'm going to I'm going to become this this success story. Um, you know, I'm going to have power and privilege and opportunity for myself. And then I'm going to sort of spread it around to those who who love me. What 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 led you to Muhammad Yunus and college homelessness and and, you know, really taking on this 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 hydra of, of urban poverty? I think part of it boils back to my mother. I mean, she was always very altruistic in in just the way she did things. So when she conducted business as an entrepreneur, um, she always paid over the market value for uh, an employee. Um, there were often many times I remember her stopping at the side of the road to help someone in need. So I remember this homeless man that was uh, living right or, you know, kind of posting uh, right next to where our house was at. And she actually went back home, you know, put together like a package of like red beans and rice and, you know, some other like bread and utensils and brought it to this man, you know, with, out any question, hey, I'm just going to I'm going to give you some food because you need it. And most recently, like the most uh, altruistic, uh, recent altruistic act was um, she adopted my uh, my niece's daughter uh, just to give her, a, you know, a good chance in being able to pursue college to, you know, get raised in a, in a stable household. So she's always had this uh, this vein of altruism in her. Um, I think the other piece of it, too, is one of the most important things I learned being uh, in that gang life is the importance of the question why, or really more so in that case, what happens when you don't ask why? Um, so it's a big component of, you know, with that we utilize in urban theory is, you know, being able to understand the why of a situation, the why of a challenge, and then being able to script, you know, how do we overcome these particular challenges? Um, and it really is about living with, a, with mission and intent uh, to create the type of environments that we want to live in. I mean, um, you know, if we keep, uh, I won't get too far on a tangent, but it's, it's a matter of, you know, trying to align yourself with the mission and really the type of planet that you want to see, uh, that you want to leave behind the legacy you want to leave behind and being able to find the vessel in which to do that. And for us, I feel like urban theory, the innovation lab, and really taking the, this, uh, uh, intentional approach to addressing systemic challenges for me is the way to do it. Hmm. So, so you're, you know, you're not the first person to think about how to solve these issues. And yet you're very consciously call yourself an innovation lab. What did you see out there in terms of, you know, I saw as an architect, you saw a, a dysfunctional system that was just designed to produce more and more expensive things for people who could afford it. But in terms of like the nonprofit world or the, the fighting poverty world or United Way or, or, or whatever the organizations were, what did you see as missing that you felt innovation could could and should bring to it? The big thing is experimentation. Um, so if you look at if you look at, say, um, a corporate technology company, they're going to invest in research and development to come up with that next innovative product. But when it comes to the social spectrum, I feel like we're not really taking a lot of uh, time or investment to pursue those, you know, next unique approaches to systemic challenges. Um, you know, 
we tend to, from what I see, we tend to go with the tried and true or, you know, what's currently working or, you know, addressing the very, I guess, specific symptom of a particular challenge. Um, so take, for example, like say um, most cities have this, they'll usually have some form of like back to school bash, back to school event where they're handing out school supplies to those children that are most in need. And it's a very good program. I'm not going to shortchange it, but it's simply addressing the symptom and they're going to do it every year time and time again, over and over and over. And I mean, again, good work, but you're not really building a strategy to the root issue. So I think there's opportunities for collaboration in, in these systems and then being able to forge that path together with you know this collection of organizations uh, to make change. Mm. So, um, so why, why do you think it is that, that we're so addicted to addressing the symptom? You know, I know, I know for me, like getting up on a ladder and, and hammering a nail into a two by four to end homelessness makes me feel really good, like I'm doing something important and maybe, you know, um, donating $50 worth of, uh, you know, office supplies from Staples could make me feel like I'm doing something. Is, is that it that these that these symptomatic gestures make the donors feel good? Or is it is it deeper than that? I mean, I think there's a there's a part of it that's that. Um, I mean, if you like, say, if you take, you know, the housing example that you just given, I mean, there there is a crucial part where, you know, we do have to build housing and we do have to, you know, provide some form of stability for these folks in need. But it overshadows, you know, the conditions that led that individual to end up in that situation in the first place. So there's a lot of other contributing factors that are leading people to, uh, into the situation. And if you don't address the contributing factors, particularly as the population increases and as the wage um, you know, as uh, the cost of living increases, then this is going to uh, amplify over time. And you're going to end up in a situation where perhaps, you know, you don't have enough resources to uh, accommodate this. And it doesn't matter how much money you throw at this point. Now it's become, you know, a critical issue that's going to garner more resources and time than what was previous, you know, than what's currently available. Um, so I think it's more about trying to look proactively and again, asking those key questions of why, why does, why is this thing happening? Why is this an essential resource? Why do we have to keep doing this? Not to say from a negative perspective, but just to understand the core issues of, you know, what leads a certain person to this situation. Um, did I answer the question thoroughly? Um, yeah, let's go. Let's, let's, let me keep poking at it. Um, so if we, if we, if we look at something. Um, like you talked about the arch, you know, your experience as an architect. Um, it's <laughs> you got a traffic jam outside. I think, uh, yeah, one of, one of the cars, uh, alarms went on. Sorry oh, about that. Okay. No, no worries. Um, keep it real here. Um, you know, so there were, it wasn't, there was a system in place that probably nobody had thought about that created these particular homes that were a very limited use to solving the big problem. But there was also a big economic incentive. Mm -hmm. um, how, how much of, of, of the two problems that you're looking at deeply, the college homelessness and the, and the community with food insecurity, how much of that is just an accidental bunch of things that happened that have become entrenched? And how much is sort of the, the energy of capitalist logic keeping that in place so that you're actually fighting against entrenched interests. So there will, I believe there probably will be some entrenched, entrenched interest at, at play here. So let's just take the real estate process, for example. 
as it pertains to affordable housing. If you look at a development model, you begin to understand very quickly the complexities and the different layers that it takes to actually develop a building. So, I mean, it, it looks as simple as just being able to hire an architect and poof, there it is, you've got a, a building. But there's a lot of stuff that has to go on in the background before that architect's even hired. So there's usually a, you know, um, a, a collection of investors that are, you know, that approach a developer to be able to put together some form of feasibility study to look at, you know, building a real estate project. So that initial developer has to take that, you know, has to take uh, a look at this site, put together a feasibility study and determine if there's any stake in actually being able to develop a project. If the answer is yes, then it goes on to the next stages of being able to hire specialty consultants, lawyers, uh, bankers, that type of thing to be able to provide the, the next uh, key components like, say, land surveys, plats, um, you know, checking the title, making sure that the land, you know, ownership has been uh, consolidated uh, and then working on a strategy to actually start approaching the city and determining what key steps they need to take in order to build to enact the project. So that may include having to go to city council, maybe doing some presentations to the community, which in that case, you may have to bring in a design team to do some preliminary renderings. Now, if you get past that stage, say you get approved to do the project in full, then you go into the design phase and that's where the architect becomes engaged and they start looking at it through that lens. But at that point, a lot of economic factors have already been put in place to pretty much predetermine what this thing needs to look like, how many units need to have, what the market value needs to be. So a lot of the, I guess you could say, design in, intuition and innovation that the architect could bring have already been kind of uh, scrubbed out because of this of this process. So when you get to that, you have to work with a very limited frame of, of um, basically rules to develop this project. And then you sprinkle in design in there inherently as, as you can. But interestingly enough, like say with this multifamily example, there's never a situation where you're eventually going to meet these tenants or you meet, you meet these eventual tenants that are going to occupy this, this building. So you go along this design process without ever fully meeting these tenants, assuming that this is what, you know, a good uh, environment is going to look like. And then that goes into construction, which then goes into leasing, which then goes into property management. And finally, at the end of this uh, uh, process is the inhabitant. So there's a huge level of uh, separation between the investor and the inhabitant throughout this process. And what uh, comes to a conclusion on this is one that helps the, every step of this process is another layer that has to be paid. Uh, so each consultant that's brought on has to take a chip of this uh, of this budget. But also every layer of this is a level, a level of assumption of what good quality housing means or what acceptable housing means. So at least from this realm, yeah, there is going to have to be some, uh, uh, we're going to have to look at some alternative processes in order to fully address it. Um, and as it pertains to, say, social determinants, uh, that's where you start getting into, like, say, uh, the wage gap, uh, stagnant wages. Um, that's when you start getting into uh, issues of incarceration, like I mentioned before, with this young man not being able to get a home or being able to get a job. Um, you start getting into issues such as uh, domestic abuse, which then, if you look deeper into that, some of that may be fueled by lack of lack of income. You know, if you're constantly living in a stressed out environment, uh, there could be some potential for that to help amplify some of these domestic issues. Uh, you get into transit issues. Um, unfortunately, Fort Worth doesn't really have a very robust public transit system. So that becomes an inhibiting factor. And as you start scoping out further and further and further, you start beginning to understand the complexities of this web uh, and really the complexities of this project, project problem that you have to solve. So... Okay. 
So, I mean, yeah, so, yeah. So, some, some of me um, totally, you know, I've, I got a degree in uh, public health in 1996, so kind of on community health. So really being aware of, you know, pre, pre-seed, proceed model and like all these different complexities. And part of me, the cynical part of my brain is going, this is actually all about money. <laughs> It's it's all about like the when you describe the process of putting up a building and all these different steps and complexities and different. It's like oh, if you got money, you can make that happen. If you don't have money, you can't make that happen. You probably don't have the the time or the knowledge to know when to show up at the urban planning meeting to state your opinion. And even if you do, who's going to listen? I mean, is is it fair to say that this this is it's a giant problem? But the basis is. Uh, in, in, you know, in equal access to cash? It is to a certain extent. I mean, I mean, the development process, quite frankly, is built around, you know, economics is it's built around, you know, being able to get a return on investment. And particularly as private equity begins investing more in real estate, that's going to be a core a priority with these projects. And I mean, to take a fair stance, I mean, with the way that the system is designed, um, it, I don't think it's any ill uh, will of, uh, in any investor or developer pursuing this type of project, but it is a statement of the system as it is and the the need to really look at uh, reinventing and redesigning the system. I mean, and to your point, I mean, it really does boil down to money. I mean, you have to have money to build to invest in real estate. You have to have money to build to proactively develop these, these projects. And at the end of this uh, process, you have to have money to be able to actually buy this product, uh, whether it be through lease or through purchase. Um, I mean, another good example here in the fourth area, if me as a single individual wanted to buy a condo, particularly in downtown or in semi-urban area, um, it's pretty expensive. I mean, you're looking, you know, at two, three, four hundred thousand dollars for a single bedroom apartment, which compared, say, to New York or uh, Los Angeles is probably relatively cheap. But for Texas and particularly Fort Worth, that is very expensive for a local. So it becomes very unattainable for, you know, a good majority of the population um, and to kind of go a little deeper into the whole idea of like um, money and economics, it boils down to uh, looking at this process again. So, you know, like I said, there's a lot of steps uh, in this process and there's a huge level of separation between the inhabitant and the investor. So um, to kind of speak a little bit on some of the work and some of the ways that we're trying to look at this, we're going to be launching an experiment here uh, shortly to look at how do we design a more proactive real estate process with the idea of being able to create a much more open table where other individuals could participate in the development process, but also try to figure out how do we diversify, let's just say the investment or the contribution pool so we can experiment with different types of projects. And maybe through this vessel, we're able to create something that others can then innovate from to then produce, you know, the future of housing, the future of commercial whatever that may be. Now, I'll be frank and saying, I don't know where this is going to go, but that's the idea with the experiment to test these ideas out, see what sticks, see if we can get a tangible prototype from that. And then from there, build, build from there. Mm-hmm. So who pays you? You know, so if you're if you're in a garage starting the next Google or Facebook, at some point, someone gives you $10 million and explains how they're going to get it back in five years with friends. Right. But what's how, you know, it seems to me that solving poverty is easier than getting people to pay you to solve poverty. So how, how did you think about setting up a for profit and who are you looking to fund us? 
So we, the way that we're setting up our organization is in two arms. Like I said, we're, we're currently waiting to get our nonprofit status. Uh, 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 right now, we're going to be filing with the state, and then we're going to be we're waiting to get our federal certification. But the way that this works is that our nonprofit arm will be the experimentation vessel here locally, and it will be the vessel that we use to garner grants and other uh, donations to be able to help with some of these projects that maybe a business can't help. Because in this past year that we've been experimenting, we've learned a lot about you know uh, our innovation lab and really where our services can, can be deployed best. So the nonprofit arm, once it's established, will absorb most of the social innovation work that we're doing right now with the idea of being able to build partnerships, to be able to shoot for grants, to be able to garner donations so we can keep us, we can build a, a sustainable funding strategy towards these particular projects with the hope that whatever toolkits that we develop will then be able to take a life on their own and there could be a handoff process to another entity to take it to that next level. The for-profit side will be basically a vessel for other organizations that are trying to address very complex challenges to be able to hire us, to be able to provide you know, the, the intellectual capital, to be able to understand the challenge and then be able to build those implementation strategies and if need be, implement them on behalf of those organizations. So basically functioning as a program manager on behalf of whoever would, uh, would, would utilize our services. And in this way, it allows us, one, to garner lessons from our nonprofit lab, uh, you know, be able to experiment with different types of toolkits to be able to better advise, you know, our customers. Uh, but it also provides us a platform to be able to uh, engage in a multitude of different projects and that way we maintain some level of flexibility as we uh, pursue this goal. So currently, uh, the way that we're being funded right now, we're in partnership with a local nonprofit here called the Healthy Tarrant County Collaboration. Um, it's been one of our primary partners with the Grow Southeast Project, the Urban Agriculture. And right now with the Homeless Project, um, we're pursuing partnerships with some of the local organizations here um, and the school itself to see if there's some funding, uh, if there's some ways that we can be partners, not only in funding, but partners in sharing resources and helping achieve the shared mission of the goal. Gotcha. Gotcha. So let, let's talk about uh, Grow Southeast, the, uh, the, the attempt to address food and economic insecurity in this, uh, I guess, Southeast Fort Worth. Um, Correct. Right. So this is this is sort of the the, the nexus of uh, of my interest in sort of, you know, in food and healthy planet. Um, so what's let's let's start with, like, what's the, the challenge? Uh, why, why is why is there a problem and why is it worth addressing? So the stop six area is part of zip code seven, six, one, one, nine. And in seven, six, one, one, nine, it's been uh, the, it, the the majority of the area is already uh, encompassed in a food desert. So there's not really access to healthy food. Most of what you see out there are going to be Williams Chicken, which is a local kind of a fast food chain for fried chicken, uh, catfish, things like that. Uh, there's also a lot of corner stores and liquor stores present in the area as well. And the poverty level, for the most part, is above the national average. So there's people living in extreme poverty in this um, in this in in these communities. Additionally, there are also transportation issues. So uh, getting a bus ride, say, from uh, that side of the community to, let's say, the west side of the community, which in a car running about 15, 20 minutes, can take about an hour or hour and a half. So there's a lot of uh, challenges going into the community from day one. Uh, additionally, as well, there's not really any, many jobs in that community that provide a good livable wage. So all that given, what you end up with is the community that uh, – uh, continuously has uh, experienced uh, generational poverty. Uh, our uh, 
you know, do not have access to adequate resources to maintain a healthy lifestyle, don't have access to healthy food, um, don't necessarily have access to transit options. So consequently, what, what has happened is that this community has been, um, you know, suffering from uh, increased chronic illnesses like diabetes. Uh, they've been uh, under uh, experiencing increased uh, mental disorders, particularly depression, uh, and particularly depression in children. Um, so a lot of these social determinants have been identified by uh, our local healthcare system, Texas Health Resources, and some of the other organizations such as Healthy Tarrant County Collaboration. Uh, uh, they've been identified and now it's a matter of trying to implement some, some form of strategy to, uh, to change that. So one of the key things that, uh, that comes uh, as a consistent reminder with these challenges, there have already been a lot of efforts to try to educate the community in terms of eating healthy, you know, pursuing financial literacy, you name it. But as it pertains particularly to food, one of the big challenges and one of the big things that came from the community is like, look, we've already been educated on this quite a bit. The problem is we don't have any access to food in our communities. You know, we have corner stores, we have Williams Chicken, we have McDonald's, but there's not really any, you know, yeah. uh, consistent grocery stores that are also. So, so I'm thinking in terms of, you know, like my background in healthcare, like who educated them and what was that like? Was it like, a, you know, schools or, or hospitals or local health clinics saying we have to teach people about, you know, healthy food and beans and rice and and. And because, you know, one of the things I learned when I studied public health is that public health gets done to the people who <laughs> can't avoid it, <laughs> right? Like yeah. they, in order to get their, their um, food stamps or they're in prison or, you know, in order, like, like we force it upon them because no one else is going to sit still and listen. Like what, what was the means by which they were taught all this stuff that now they don't have the, the means to act on? So it came from a collection of, of, of groups, uh, particularly nonprofits. Um, it did come from some of the health clinics in the area. Um, I don't have specifics, so I apologize for that. But yeah. a lot of effort had already been put into place um, to trying to educate, you know, this community. And again, it boiled back down to, OK, well, we know that, you know, after these series of educational seminars that we need to eat healthier, but how do we go about doing it? And I think that was the big question that we were, that this organization was kind of tasked to answer is how do we go about addressing food insecurity and putting food in this community so they can actually have access to it? All right. So, you know, so some things that have been tried is to try to get some big grocery chain to to put a flagship store in the middle of the community. My understanding is that they can be pretty profitable, but the corporations don't like to do it. Like what was what what do you what do you see as having been tried around the country that hasn't worked? So to to stay specific to this local community, they actually have tried doing the big box grocery stores. And I believe up to date, three of them have failed. Um, they tried a miniards, which I don't remember the time frame that it was in operation, but it failed. Uh, it was then uh uh, turned into a fiesta, which then failed. And the most recent example was a Walmart, I believe, with a development called Renaissance Square uh, that has also failed. So the big box store has been tried quite a bit and it hasn't worked. I don't have exact reasons of why, but my uh, instinct is that there's probably some uh, there's probably some transit issues that lead these folks to being, not being able to really adequately get to these grocery stores, depending if they're riding the bus and when their shift ends. 
I think the other part of it too is just understanding the vibe of the community and whether what's going to work and what's not. I mean, if you're used to going to the corner store every single day to get your, you know, your groceries, then, you know, you're having to break habit and breaking habit may not be conducive to your day-to-day schedule. Again, going back on transit, if you have to take a 30 or 40 minute bus ride to a grocery store to only be able to carry two bags back, mm-hmm. that becomes very inconvenient. So, I mean, grocery stores have already been tried. Uh, they haven't worked. Um, what has worked here as recently with this organization, Healthy Tarrant County Collaboration, is actually Healthy Corner Stores. So one in particular called the Ramy Market uh, was executed roughly about two, three years ago in collaboration with another organization called the Blue Zones Project or Fort Worth. Um, and just a little background on the Blue Zones Project, it's a uh, global effort to help uh, build around nine core principles that help make the healthy choice the easy choice with the longer term goal of being able to improve uh, the lifespan of the citizens of whatever city they implement this project in. So what this market is, it's uh, this neighborhood's first, I guess you could say, community centric grocery store. So it went from being practically, you know, basically just a liquor store that sold chips, beer, liquor, cigarettes to now selling fresh produce. Uh, And it's seen some level of success. I think there were some things that could have probably been done a little better in terms of being able to maybe engage the community up front um, um, just to kind of garner their their interest into it. But um, so to get out of Fort Worth and go into a more national example, there's a um, there's a grocery store that I, I listened to on a podcast and I'm drawing a blank on the name. But ideally, the, the way that they did it is they use human centered design to bring the community in up front and really make them an integral of designing this grocery store, even to the, the intimate details of designing where the grocery uh, aisles went, what went where, and how you went about navigating this store. And they've seen a, a level of success. And when I adjourn, I'll send you the link to that, that way we can hmm. use in your in your podcast but i like i like the approach that they took that they really engaged the community up front and make them an integral part of really building this project that way you're not having to assume you're hearing it directly from the community that this uh that this product is going to serve hmm and but um so they've been educated about healthier food about more produce you know one, one of the blue zones uh tenets is mostly plants right mm-hmm. and Yes. So like the communities I work with, um, you know, it's people who do have cars and access to healthy food and they still have trouble eating healthy. Right. Because they're used to going to the Jack in the Box on the corner or the Sonic or the McDonald's or even just going to the grocery store and picking up, you know, packaged foods and animal products. Um, When when these fresh produce corner stores are available, do people avail themselves? I mean, there, there is some level of participation. Um, I think it's just like any other initiative in this case, like there has to be some level of management and community engagement because you can do it once. And I mean, there'll be kind of an initial fallout from that where, you know, people get engaged, they participate in it, they buy from it, but also part of it is keeping, keeping that dialogue open with the community. I mean, these are living, these become living organizations, living programs at that point. And I mean, things are going to have to change intermittently as the community changes as well. Because I mean, if you think about it, you know, you're, you're introducing a brand new concept into a community that never had this service before. So it takes a level of engagement to really understand, you know, how this is going to affect and how the, 
the behavior habits begin to change as they begin utilizing this this new resource. So it takes some time to actually fully implement um, and fully, I guess, ingrain and build that appreciation for that product. If you think you're just going to be able to drop it in here and then problem solve, that's not necessarily the case. I mean, it's it's a it's a living process. Mm -hmm. So are are people seeing results from shifting? Like one of the main things, you know, that gets people to change is seeing other people change successfully and say, oh, well, they can do it. I can do it. Now I see, you know, they can help me. They can support me and also that it's worth it. So are you seeing sort of bright lights in the community sort of, you know, spreading the word about, hey, man, I stopped I stopped eating, you know, the chips, the, the, the cheapest calories at the corner store. I'm now making beans and rice with some vegetables, throwing a little bit of chicken in and like I'm doing better. I'm I'm dropped one of my diabetes meds or like, is there that kind of uh, community, um, you know, support and, and uh, cross pollination of, of ideas? I begin, I mean, at least with this particular community, Stop Six, we have been seeing some additional efforts around urban agriculture and community gardening uh, um, come up. Um, I think with this still being a relatively new idea, it's, too early to say what the trends are going to be and how it's going to affect well-being for this community overall. Uh, I mean, we have seen that some people are beginning to buy uh, more predominantly from the store, but the bigger issue is that this is just one of many uh, corner stores in this community. So it's only serving a really small demographic of folks. So I think collectively, as we start seeing the success of this, it's going to be crucial to be implementing additional corner stores, which actually is an initiative that we're working in a partnership with this health, with the Healthy Tarrant County collaboration to see, you know, how do we get a good snapshot on the existing corner stores and food marts that are there, see what they offer, and then see where those opportunities lie for partnerships for, you know, maybe advancing some of these, uh, these uh, healthy initiatives. Um, we're hoping to see that report, uh, I believe, at the end of the year, uh, where we get a good snapshot on the southeast side. Uh, so in other words, you know, so, some of the 100 convenience stores in the area bring in a, a, um, a produce rack. Yeah, and, and really the first step is understanding, you know, where, who are these, where are these stores located and what do they carry? And then um, um, the Healthy Tarrant Collaboration, what they're doing is basically putting a vetting metric. So if you're, a green, if you're identified as a green store, then you have, you know, fresh produce, fresh fruit, fresh milk available at your store. If you're in a red, then you're just selling cigarettes and liquor, basically. Um, that's going to be the first crucial step to really get an honest snapshot on what's there. And then that off also offers us an opportunity to figure, all right, these are some potential partnership opportunities where we can start extending this idea. And again, the hope would be as we, you know, as we get, say, a second, third or fourth store on board, that it'll hopefully it'll start building a trend where other store owners will want to partake in this. Because that, that's the other key piece of this that's also can be quite difficult. If you get a store owner that's not really interested in doing this, then you either have to make a very persuasive argument or the project dies right there. Mm -hmm. Right. Uh, and what, you know, is there any sense of, you, know, you mentioned the, uh, the chain stores, which I assume when people give their money to that store, it mostly it leaves the community to a large extent. Right. Some, yes. But I mean, there are some chain stores that are owned by locals there in that community. Um, now, it may be someone that migrated to that community. Um, so it just depends on which one you're talking about. I mean, there are some that are, you know, chains or franchises of larger store systems. Uh, there's a lot of family dollars in the area. So there's part of that strategy as well, too. 
Um, and then, you know, you get your, your typical gas stations here and there. So it's kind of a mix. Um, it just depends on what store you're looking at. Um, particularly for the Ramy market, the one that I mentioned earlier, that's actually owned by, you know, a local here in Fort Worth. So, I mean, there is that kind of community connection right off the bat, which I think helped with being able to build this strategy. Uh, when you start getting into uh, corporate franchises, the, it becomes a little bit more difficult depending on how many layers you have to go up in leadership to get approval. Right. And kind of where, where I, I'm going with this is, is, is there any sense of sort of community outrage that, that would lead to sort of like taking back power? Like we, you know, we've been screwed and people, these, these, uh, you know, the liquor companies and the cigarette companies and the fast food companies are making a buck off of our suffering and we're going to take back power. Is there any of that, um, sort of, you know, awareness slash outrage percolating through any of the projects? I mean, there there is some general outrage just on the conditions in the community. I haven't seen anything specifically geared towards, like, say, the fast food joints or any of the corner stores, you know, in a, in a way where they're, you know, deliberately taking advantage of this community. But overall, there is a lot of disenfranchisement with this community in terms of, you know, just civic leadership and really feeling like they've been ignored, um, you know, compared to some of the other communities in, in the city. I mean, if you look at the mass, the amount of resources that have been dumped in, say, in a community, uh, what was it, um, let's just say, near Southside, it's a very successful development. Uh, and over the past 12 years, it's gone a very radical transformation. There's been a lot of money dumped in there. There's been TIFs that's been allocated. Um, and there's been a lot of garnered interest in this particular side of town. Now, granted, the cost of that development is that, you know, the the price of real estate has gone up significantly. So now it's become a very exclusive community that, you know, takes uh, some level of uh, investment to be able to actually uh, set up shop over there. And what we've seen with that particular community is that a lot of the shops are beginning to be, um, are basically owned by uh, the, the, the same two or three entities. Um, so if you take the inverse with, with this community, very little of that has happened. Um, you know, a lot of the sidewalks are beginning to crumble away. Uh, lighting is uh, poor at best in some of these areas in the community. Um, you know, the bus stops. Some have shelters. A lot of them do not. It's just a post in the ground. Uh, so there's a lot of general outrage over that. And like I said, just feeling like the community has been forgotten. Um, um, and I mean, there's kind of uh, mixed feelings with civic leadership, depending on who you talk to. Uh-huh. Because the way I, the way I think about food is that it's at the very foundation of civilization that if I you know that I can only I can complain about things, but, you know, I can't I can't run away from home and then come home three times a day for meals and consider myself independent. And so I'm, I'm wondering, you know, the, the efforts you're doing around community gardens and urban gardens, do you see that as a form of empowering people? to not be so dependent on this system that has kept them down. Absolutely. Um, so the reason why we, we chose urban agriculture and particularly urban farming for that matter is we wanted to look at it through an economic development lens. So going back on, you know, the history of the community, there's not only food insecurity, but there's also economic insecurity within the community. There's no jobs. So the goal is with using urban farms in lieu of, say, a community garden, as we want these folks to be able to embrace these farms as a business. One, it provides more stake 
for them to be able to uh, invest in, in their business and also scale their business, um, which provides the consistency and the quality that you need to be able to build on those secondary and treasury economies built around the food system. But it does go back to the root issue. Now these folks are able to um, basically have a little bit more control on the food, you know, the, the access to the food that they have, and also be able to expand access to their fellow community members. Um, so part of it is being able to take back, you know, I guess what could say what's been taken from them, uh, being able to provide some level of independence, but also being able to provide a, a strategy where uh, a scalable strategy where every success story encourages someone else to join the journey. And also, as we get more people joining the journey, you get those uh, those opportunities to start in introducing those other uh, those other ventures and businesses that support this economy. Mm. So tell tell me about the uh, the urban farms. And first, like what, what what do I see when I drive down the street? Is it, I'm, I'm picturing sort of a very paved environment, right? Like not a lot of parks and grassy areas. Is, you know, so. There's this neighborhood in particular has a lot of single family homes, but it's an older neighborhood. So it's called Stop Six because it was actually the sixth stop for what used to be our train system between Dallas and Fort Worth um, that has since been uh, removed uh, in lieu of the car. Um, you know, this happened many, uh, many years ago. But um, that being said, the, the community itself is laid on a very kind of traditional grid system. So the streets are very linear. There's not a lot of cul-de-sacs. So it's actually quite an easy neighborhood to navigate uh, once you learn the streets. Um, there are uh, areas sprinkled in between where you do find these very nice, vast parks, but a lot of the houses start getting dilapidated. Some of them are owned by, you know, uh, have been owned by families for multiple generations, but you're beginning to see a lot of houses also being bought up by, you know, um, uh, property owners where they're just lease properties. And some of them are beginning to get a little dilapidated as time uh, passes. Um, but as you start navigating through some of the boroughs of this community, you begin realizing something else. There's a lot of vacant land, and some of this vacant land is already being utilized for agriculture, maybe more, more for a personal garden or a personal farm, particularly as you start getting past the 820 loop, which is one of our major highways, uh, inner, you know, inner city highways. Uh, you get closer to Lake Arlington, and you begin seeing large swaths of land that have potential for urban agriculture. And again, some of these folks are already beginning to implement their own farms, maybe not as a private venture, but you know, personally to help support their family. So there's a lot of prime opportunity in this community to help really advance this, uh, this, this program and hopefully bring on more urban farmers to help support this economy. Hmm. So do people remember farming or hearing stories from grandparents or are we taking people who have you know worked factory jobs or service jobs and giving them an entirely new skill set. So um, one of the farm, farmers, Iris Milton, was actually, she grew up in East Texas, and she has a, a, a very uh, intimate history with farming and, you know, spending time in the garden with her mother. So for her, a lot of this is already naturally ingrained in, you know, who she is. And it's actually something that she wants to pursue full time once the farm is fully established. Maria, who's another one of our growers, is um, you know a certified uh, master community gardener. So she's already got a sort of a green thumb, and for her, this is just kind of taking that uh, initiative to the next level. Instead of doing you know what would be a hobby garden, now we're able to do a full-on you know half-acre farm. Uh, Cleveland, with friends of Cobb Park, is looking at trying to utilize some of his background, particularly uh, you know his history with his father. 
his father purchased this land in the hopes of being able to provide some form of uh, a program to help their community build uh, their well-being and utilize it as a means to help teach future generations about you know the earth and about where their food comes from. Uh, so for them, they're looking at their farm not only as a means to feed their community, but also as an educational resource to help teach others. And then the Vogel's farm, um, the, the gentleman that's actually running that, Gregory Joel, actually used to work at another farm in our community garden in a, uh, a neighborhood on the other side of town called Como. So he was brought on board as, you know, a um, one with technical knowledge around growing to help take this farm and, you know, uh, build this dream. Um, and what we've been able to do as an organization to help these farmers build a grow, um, the Healthy Tarrant County Collaboration provided initial stipends to help the farmers be able to buy seeds to build to buy dirt to build to buy equipment whatever they need in order to get through those first crucial steps of, of growing their farm but also we bought a uh, a tractor called a bcs which is a small scale two-wheel tractor that you can load in the back of a truck and operate you know with one individual and it allows these folks if they like to use the resource you know to have access to professional equipment to be able to quickly be able to put together their farm and we also provide the training if need be we can actually do it for them Mm -hmm. So, so I pulled up Google Maps and I sort of randomly clicked um, a street view in Stop Six. I'm on Langston Street um, near Chapman, and I'm seeing a lot of grass and a lot of a lot of green. So, see, so this is not like Milwaukee where you have to truck in dirt over asphalt, right? There's, there's, uh, and I'm imagining the a lot of the lawns would be pretty good uh, growing media because they haven't been depleted by farming before. In some cases, yes. I mean, um, it's one of the caveats with Texas. The soil here can be hit or miss depending on what neighborhood you're in. Um, uh, particularly in this area, the soil is not always very conducive for growing. Uh, so there is actually a lot of amendments we have to make in order to get the, the soil with a high enough nutritional value where it'll actually start growing you know, a, a healthy produce. Um, now with asphalt, it's interesting that you say that. So with Cleveland's farm, um, there's a little bit of history of his site. Um, when his father originally purchased the site, there was a lot of uh, like swells and uh, ditches that his father had to fill up. So he used concrete, rocks, asphalt to actually fill up. So when we were actually tilling it up on the initial run, we hit a lot of that and we had to kind of revise our strategy on how to uh, amend the farm and get it ready. So there's a lot of history that goes into these sites, uh, depending on, you know, um, who was the previous owner. Um, like with Iris' site, it actually used to have a house on it. So as we begun, uh, as we were digging it up to get the rows ready, uh, we actually found bits and pieces of the house. We found some old tools that got lost, I guess, in the demolition process. So you never really know um, with these sites, um, and particularly with uh, Texas, too, um, we get a lot of invasive grass, particularly St. Augustine and Bermuda, and it's a hell of a process trying to get rid of that stuff. So there, you know, a big uh, chunk of the upfront work is really finding a way to effectively get rid of this grass, pull out as many of the roots and weeds as possible before you even start seeding. Mm -hmm. So is, is there a an agricultural system that you use sort of, you know, permaculture or uh, grow intensive? or uh, you know will allen's growing power is there anything that sort of serves as a model for your experiments the model that we're using is a spin technique uh, 
I think uh, the gentleman that made it probably most renowned was Curtis Stone out of Canada. Um, there's a gentleman that we recruited here uh, named Charlie Blaylock. He's a uh, small-scale urban farmer out of Azle, Texas, running uh, Shine's Farm Stand. And he actually has been able to perfect kind of a Texas version of this spin technique. So it's really utilizing high-intensive, small-acreage farming, uh, you know, really boiling it down to the nearest inch to be able to maximize the uh, the amount that you can grow on a small on a small lot. So most of the lots that we're working with are about half an acre, third of an acre. The only one that's really of, of large um, of large size is probably Madias, which is a total about two and a half acres, and then Greater Mount Tabor, which is a church. They have roughly about three acres that they've dedicated to their farm. Um, and then our 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 newest farmer, um, who's just come on board as of this past month. Uh, we're looking at trying to do his farm uh, roughly on a 3.5 acre site, but his is probably going to be his is going to be our first experimentation into like small scale ranching to really test this new urban agriculture ordinance to see if it's allowable. Mm -hmm. So uh, before we close, I would love to get sort of like a little bit of human interest in like what happens to people and to a community when what used to be an abandoned lot or a scraggly grass field turns into a farm growing, you know, beautiful, nutritious produce. Do you see impact? Absolutely. So we've seen it from two ways. Um, we'll start with Miss Iris. Miss Iris had a um, farm is actually conveniently located next to an elementary school, Maud I. Logan. So they're, they actually participate quite heavily in the ribbon cutting of her farm. Uh, they had the students over there helping plant some of the trees, plant some of the tomatoes. So there's a lot of uh, interest from the immediate community to actually see these things succeed. But as we've beginning, uh, as word has been spreading about you know the work that we're doing, we've been seeing more people come to our uh, our monthly meeting, interested in setting up their own farms. So one of those is the gentleman I just mentioned that's trying to set up his farm to be you know a farm and a small ranch. Uh, we actually had another gentleman that was interested in uh, you know developing his own. Uh, farm. And then most recently, a local uh, YMCA that we hold our meetings at is interested in setting up a community garden. So there is a trend building with people wanting to pursue urban agriculture or community garden. Uh, and really the way that we're positioning this organization is as a vessel to help them be able to achieve that goal. Mm. Beautiful. Um, what are so what what's else in the hopper for uh, for the end of 2019, 2020? What do you see things moving? So the big things for us, I mean, with Grow Southeast right now, we're currently looking at securing additional funding uh, to help uh, grow the program. We want to start taking it into phase two where one, we can start funding additional farmers, but two, start looking at how do we can start uh, converting this into purely just from implementation to a management type group. So there are some things that we're trying to overcome, one of them being logistics. Like I mentioned before, we have a small tractor, but as of date, we don't have a logistics program to actually handle transporting the tractor in a safe manner from site to site. So part of our plan coming up with 2019, 2020 is being able to secure funding to be able to actually pay for that and come up with a feasible and consistent system where we can get this tractor relocated very effectively. That way we don't have to call in favors. We're not trying to see if, you know, if someone's available with a pickup truck to come pick it up, we have a viable option. The other piece too is an idea that we're entertaining is looking at, is there a way that we can uh, garner stipends to help pay for that first year of, of a farmer's income? So with farming, um, there's a there's a significant time lag with being able to one establish your farm and then be able to get it into profitability. 
we're going to try if we can get the funding to see if we can offer one farmer, you know, a full year of paid uh, pay to help them get through those initial hurdles of being able to establish their farmer. But the hope that this will hopefully, you know, encourage more people to pursue this, uh, this, uh, this uh, trade. Um, and then long-term with Rose Southeast, we would like to see to start taking on some form of sustainability, either through uh, a social enterprise vessel or um, um, some other way where it can operate almost like a business. So one of the ideas that we've toyed around with is looking at could grow Southeast essentially become like a tool shed that rents out property for small scale urban farmers and build in an incentive package for, you know, the folks that are members of grow Southeast to be able to get a discount or some other additional perks. We don't know what that's going to look like in full yet, but those are the kinds of conversations that we're entertaining to really build again, a sustainable and scalable solution. Uh -huh. And it's funny, like I'm hearing sort of, it makes perfect sense. And there's an irony around you coming up with these solutions, but as an innovation lab and then de desiring to spread them out and recognizing that every solution that you come up with locally is not necessarily going to work somewhere else. So it's almost like what you're exporting is a design system and a thinking system and an experimentation system rather than, OK, we figured it out in, in, in southeast Fort Worth. So now you just do what we did. You're exactly right on that. I mean, really, the value that we bring is a is a design mentality and using human centered design as a framework to foster collaboration and ultimately innovation. Um, if I may quote the Toyota Mobility Foundation to some extent, I was in, uh, I believe it was uh, L.A. for a conference called L.A. Commotion, and it was primarily focused on, you know, looking at the future of mobility. And a gentleman from the Toyota Mobility Foundation said this exact same thing. They had did an experiment in Japan, if I believe, to try to figure out how to get more people to ride the bus. And through this extensive process, they were able to determine that they could get someone to ride the bus as long as the shelter was within a quarter mile of where they lived. Hmm. So problem solved. We have a toolkit. So they were hired by a neighboring city, I think, in Malaysia to do the same thing. And they implemented this toolkit and it failed horribly. So it hits on exactly what you're saying. Every community and city is going to have different hurdles. And particularly, like, say, with urban agriculture, it could be, you know, as simple as understanding the, um, uh, the community vibe to the soil, to what grows seasonally. There's a lot of uh, contributing factors. And also just understanding what resources are currently available in that city. I mean, what we have available isn't always going to be available there. And when you get into, like, say, municipal code, that also plays a big component of how well these strategies may work. So with us, the advantage that we have in Fort Worth is that we have an urban agriculture ordinance that's actually trying to encourage folks to grow food, you know, in their front and backyards. Now, it's not perfect by any means, but it's a really damn good start. Well, it's, uh, yeah, it's, be it's better than getting uh, fined or cited for, for growing food on your median or... Or not having a not having a homeowners association worthy lawn. Absolutely, and I mean, um, even with homeowners association, you get in, into a gray area depending on whether or not they will allow that. I mean, some of these neighborhood associations can have a very uh, can flex a very heavy muscle. So, it even in Fort Worth, I mean, it, it's hard to say if this toolkit would work universally across every every community. I mean the the practice and the means would work. It's just a matter of would the community actually embrace that? Mm -hmm. Right. So, yes, I mean, it's, it, it sounds like the, the chief exports are a way of thinking and and even more fundamental than that, uh, an approach of respecting the people that you're trying to help. Absolutely. I mean, the, a term that I heard on a TED talk 
is, you know, really utilizing the community because they're the citizen experts. They know their situation better than anyone else, better than any uh, nonprofit CEO, because they live it day in and day out. So utilize them. They have a wealth of knowledge. Right. Beautiful. Um, well, I'm going to let you get back to uh, to these um, incredibly worthy and exciting projects. Um, I want to thank you for everything you're doing, for the inspiration, for the knowledge you've, you've dropped. I'll, I'll look forward to getting a couple of those uh, those references so I can I can share them on the show notes for the podcast. And thank you so much for taking the time today. This has been inspiring. I appreciate it. I look forward to doing it again. We need to keep this going. Amen. All right. Thanks so much. All right. Isn't it good to know that there's folks like Jesse and his team at Urban Theory in the world doing this fundamentally crucial work to kind of weave together the social fabric of our world, of our country, of our communities, so that all may be fed, all may be well, all may be given the chance to live out their dreams. So if you enjoyed this episode of the Plant Yourself podcast and you'd like to support the show, again, best thing you can do, quickest, easiest, cheapest to free actually is to subscribe and leave a review on Apple Podcasts. For more information about Wellstart Health, check out, guess what? Wellstarthealth.com. And if you want to check out the show notes for today's episode, which also includes the video, we YouTubed this. Um, you can find that at plantyourself.com slash 330-330. Gosh, I'm almost a third of the way to a thousand shows. If you're new to the show, you can catch up on hundreds of archived episodes over at plantyourself.com. All right. In garden news, help zucchini attack. We literally have 50 or 60 pounds of zucchini on our kitchen, our dining room table. As my wife posted on Facebook, what's the point of growing all this food when now you have no place to sit down and eat it? So if you're in North Carolina and you want to make a little trip and get some fresh garden zucchini, that would be awesome. Just to add a little drama to the garden, the raccoons have destroyed our corn. It was looking so nice. It was like seven, eight feet tall with the ears coming in, with the silk poking out. And raccoons discovered it and over three nights pretty much tore it to the ground. Last night, um, we made a concoction of garlic and Scorpio pepper paste, sprayed that on all the stalks and leaves and ears. But apparently raccoons don't care. They don't mind hot. So uh, no, no corn this year. Uh, also have a groundhog problem. Um, and we have not yet caught the bugger. But uh, we'll keep you up to date. In running news, my foot's feeling better. My, my heel's doing much better. I've been going to the gym and doing walking, as Josh Lajani suggested to me, at a 15% incline, at about uh, three to four miles an hour, which is as pretty good as a workout as, uh, as running uh, on flat ground at uh, maybe double that speed. So uh, it's working, and uh, that way I'm also doing some swimming. Um, today, I wore goggles for the first time and uh, discovered how you can actually see where you're going in a pool. It's very cool. All right. And thanks. Thanks to Will Ridenauer for allowing me to use Sabali Dawn, the Dance of Peace, as the theme music of this podcast. Check out willridenauer.com for more of his beautiful West African Kora music. And of course, thanks to all you Plant Yourself podcast patrons, as in... 
Kim Harrison, Lynn McClellan, Anthony Jason, Brittany Porter, Dominic Mara, Barbara Whitney, Hammy Tammy Black, Amy Good, Amanda Hatherley, Mary Jane Wheeler, Ellen Kennelly, Melissa Cobb, Rachel Burns, Christine Nielsen, Tina Sharp, Tina Ahern, Jen Volkanovsky, David Bizek, The Mysterious, Michelle X, Elspeth Feldman, Victoria Dolomanova, Leia Stoller, Alan Christensen, Colleen Peck, Michelle Andrews, Josina, Julianne Rollins, Stu Dolmix, Sarah Durkis, Ranzo Circus, Kelly Cameron, Wayne Pedersen, Leanne Peterson, Janet Selby, Tom, Claire Adams, Tom Franzek, Jeanette Bennett, Gila, Sarah David Donahue, Blair Cyber, Doruna Vizov. Gio and Carol and Argentati, Jody Friesen, Ruth Ann Thunderbrook, Misha Rosal, Mike Warbeck, The Holy Mysterious, Tracy Z, Alicia Lemus, Rebecca Hughes, Val Lindemann, Rhymes with Cinnamon, Nick Harper, Stephanie Holmes, Martha Bergen, Nicole Ramsey, Susan Amano, Molly Levine, The Inscrutable Harry R., Susan Laverty, The Panda Vegan, Craig Kovic, Adam Sharp, Karen Burry, Heather Morgan, Ashley Corker, and Kelly Machia, Deanne Norton, Bonnie Lynch, and Plant Happy Organ, Sabina Kurtzels, Nigel Davies, Mary Blum, Teresa Copel, Shell Rootless, Julia Watkin, Breed O'Connell, Brian Sheridan, Shannon Hirschman, Kate Roseland, Diot, Julie Langholm, Hedegaard. Isa Tuzan Wak, Honey Hainline, Aaron Greer, Alicia Davis, Aviva Lael, Heather O'Connor, Carolyn Jensen, Cheryl Orlikoski, Plant Powered for Health, Karen Smith, Scott Marani, Karen and Joe Crabtree, Tanya Lewis, Kirby Burton, Teresa Carell, Kevin McCauley, Elizabeth Rothschild, Kelly Baker, Miracle and Jesse, Cheryl Dwyer, Jenny Hazelton, Valerie Peltier, Peter W. Evans, Colleen Harrison, Justine Divitt, Jessica Summermeyer, Dennis Byrd, Darby Kelly, Lori Fanny, Lidea Lundquist, Valerie Hummel, Deb Casilla, Emily Iaconelli, Levy Wallach, Rosamund McAdee, Dan McCorney, Stephen Leland, Patty Dory D. Martino. Mike and Donna Kartz, Deanne Bishop, Billbury Elf, Gunter Schmidt, Marjorie Lewis, Kelly Molden, Trisha Adams, Ian Kramer, Nancy Sheldon, Lindsay Bayshore, Gunmarie Hagen, Tracy Gullis, Laura Heaton, Meg for Mama Says, Rochelle Kennedy, Joan Borstein, and Diana Goldman for your generous support of the podcast. That's it for this week. As always, be well, my friends. So if you appreciate the Plant Yourself podcast and would like to help support the mission of the show, there's a few easy ways to do it. One is to just go to wherever you get your podcasts and leave a review. Let other people know about it. Give us some stars. Give us some love. And that really helps us be found by more people. Something else, of course, you can do is let someone know about this podcast, someone uh, who you think would benefit. Send them maybe a couple of episodes that you think would uh, pique their interest or just uh, ask them to subscribe in general. And third, you can join arms and become a patron, a financial supporter of this show. You may have noticed that there's no advertising in the show and it's free for everyone and it's supported, paid for by those who can afford it. So if you would like to make a one time contribution or an ongoing monthly pledge, you can do so at plantyourself.com slash gift. All right. Time for thanks. Thanks to Will Ridenauer for allowing me to use his beautiful song, Sabali Don, The Dance of Peace. You can find more of Will's music at his website, willridenauer.com. And of course, thanks to all of you Plant Yourself podcast patrons. Kim Harrison, Lynn McClellan, Anthony Disson, Brittany Porter, Dominic Mara, Barbara Whitney, Tammy Black, Amy Good, Amanda Hatherley, Mary Jean Wheeler, Ellen Kennelly, Melissa Cobb, Rachel Barnes, Christine Nielsen, Tina Sharp, Tina Ahern, Jen Filkonofsky, David Bizek, The Mysterious, Michelle X, Elspeth Feldman, Leah Stoller, Alan Christensen, Colleen Peck, Michelle Andrews, Josina, Sarah Durkis, Rhymes with Circus, Kelly Cameron, Wayne Pedersen, Janet Selby, Kara Adams, Tom Fronsek, Jeanette Benham, Gail Lacerte, David Donahue, Blair Cyber, Toronto Vizo, Gio and Carol Argentati, Jody Friesner, Ruthann Thunderbrook, Misha Rosen, Michael Warbeck. The equally mysterious Tracy Z of Eva Lael, Alicia Lemus, Rebecca Hughes, Val Lenneman, Rhymes with Cinnamon, Nick Harpers and Martha Bergner, Susan Amon, Molly Levine, the inscrutable Harry R., Susan Laverty, the Panda, Vegan, Craig Kovic, Adam Scharf, Karen Burry, Heather Morgan, Kelly Machia, Deanne Norton, Bonnie Lynch, Plant Happy Oregon, Sabina Kurtzels, Nigel Davies, Marion Blum, Teresa Copel, Julian Watkins, Breed O'Connell, Shannon Hirsch, Shannon Hirschman, Linda Ayat, Colm Hedegaard, Isa Tuzawak, Honey Hainline, Aaron Greer, Alicia Davis. 
Heather O'Connor, Carolyn Jensen, Sherry Olakoski of Plant Power for Health, Karen Smith, Scott Marani, Karen and Joe Crabtree, Tanya Lewis, Kirby Burton, Teresa Carell, Kevin McCauley, Elizabeth Rothschild, Ann Jesse, Cheryl Dwyer, Jenny Hazelton, Valerie Peltier, Peter W. Evans, Colleen Harrison, Justine Divid, Joshua Sommermeyer, Dennis Bird, Darmy Kelly, Laurie Fanny, Linnea Lundquist, Valerie Hummel, Emily Iaconelli, Levy Wallach, Rosamund McEntee, Dan McCorney, Stephen Lehman. Petty Martino, Mike and Donna Carson, Deanne Bishop, Bill Brielf, Gunter Schmidt, Marjorie Lewis, Kelly Molden, Trisha Adams, Ian Kramer, Nancy Sheldon, Lindsay Bashford, Gunmarie Hagen, Tracy Gullis, Laura Heaton, Meg from Mama Says, Rochelle Kennedy, Diana Goldman, Stacey Stokes, Ben Savage, Michael Kay, Holly Butler, Diana, David Hughes, Connie Rogers, Claire England, Sally Robertson, Parham Ganchi, Amy Daly, Brian Tourville, Mark Jeffrey Johnson, Josie Dempsey, Karen Schmidt. Pamela Hayden, Emily Perryman, Olga Sidoroska, Allison Corbett, Richard Stone, Lauren Vaught, Abedible Musings, Aaron Hasty, Sean Owen, Sagar Nayak, Erica Piedra, and Danielle Roberts for your generous support of the podcast. That's it for today. As always, be well, my friends.